Genre. Hello, everyone. This is Bob J. Kester. Uh, welcome to the first in a series of Immunities Hiatus podcasts, where we will be talking about the series of adaptations of Invasion of the Body Snatchers. If you're a fan of Immunities but haven't seen Invasion of the Body Snatchers 1956, I think this will be a fun listen anyway and might inspire you to see it. Or if you own it, you could put it on with the sound off and use us as a commentary track. With me are... John Ingle, Joe Page, and Marjorie Muller. All right, great. Great to have you all here. Marjorie, just to start with, uh, who did you play in Immunities? I played Molly in season three of Immunities. Oh, that's great. Can you remember a line from Molly? Sure, I can cobble one together. Let's see. Lorna hates us. Lorna just wants to get away from us. Stop thinking that she will think like us about the greater good. She is one of them. She will only think of herself. Wonderful. And uh, if you don't remember that, then you didn't see, listen to season three of Immunities, because I think that really <laughs> stood out. Um, Joe, who did you play in Immunities? I played Jordan Channing in seasons one and two, who likes to <laughs> keep his toes in field work, even though he's a higher level executive. And as a, uh, a little uh, treat for anybody who's listening to this, uh, Jordan's going to have some questions to answer uh, regarding the events of season three (laughs) (laughs) and how this could be, have been allowed to happen. Mm. Uh, So let's hear uh, some Jordan from season one. Jordan in season one said, I'm sorry, but is that really a good idea? She'll know that Professor Holbrook isn't from around here and she might put together that we're smuggling her through and she sounds unstable unstable you're talking about our heroine Mm, and uh, and, uh, from season two mrs shoal you are misrepresenting my position it is of course a welcome fact that some immunes have chosen to live with their altered loved ones there we go thank you very much and john where are you from uh well i'm from kansas city missouri but i also (laughs) uh, am the Producer, but in this I, internet world in which we all live. <laughs> in the internet world, I was the producer and co-host of the Alien Minute podcast, where we uh, dissected the movie Alien one minute at a time. Uh, I then moved on to produce and host the Aliens Minute, where we uh, did the sequel to Alien, Aliens. And thus far, wow. no other movies have been done minute by minute from me. And that's probably going to stay that way. Gotcha, since you wisely chose to bail on the series right there. <laughs> yes, that was the, that was the nice... <laughs> A nice cutting off point was Aliens, for sure. Yeah. Unlike the rest of us who like kept watching movie after movie. But of course, for us, that was a two-hour commitment, not a year-long commitment. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Great. And so by minute by minute, you mean like, you know, you had like one episode a day where you would talk about one minute of the movie, right? One minute of the movie discussed five, five days a week for however long it takes <laughs> to get through the movie. So it's, I can't remember how many, I, I want to say it ended up being a total of 200 and, oh man, 250 some episodes to do both movies. Oh yeah, to put yeah. together. And I'll just say like, uh, even amongst Movies by Minute podcast, that one was particularly well-informed and uh, really mm, interesting you. to listen to. So I would recommend that for anybody interested in those movies or just interested in filmmaking of that era. Right. Uh, speaking of filmmaking, we were talking about a film, uh, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, 1956, the first uh, film of that title, made during a period of considerable political, I don't know if hysteria is the right word, but like considered tension 
which seems to be a good time for body snatcher movies, I think, in general. But, you know, it seems to be about communists taking over everybody or maybe anti-communists taking over everybody. <laughs> and it pretty much works both ways, but we can talk about that as we go along. We start off with big, old-fashioned, dramatic music, dum dum dum, so that, you know, people know that they got into the right movie. And then a frame story, which I'm assuming did not exist in the original version of the film, where cops and a plainclothes person uh, show up at a hospital and... They find out pretty quickly that he's a doctor, not like a detective or something. And then this other doctor in a white doctor uniform who looks vaguely like the uh, one of the characters from the Dick Van Dyke show, but isn't actually him. Oh, um, no, it, it is. It absolutely oh, is. That is really? Oh, really? Oh, yeah. That's he's Mel? The, oh, my yeah, God. Yeah, it's Mel, the guy yeah, constantly insulted by Rosemary, and yeah, that's him and for Marie sure. Amsterdam. And oh, Amsterdam. Really Amsterdam. Him. Oh, here? I, I talked myself out of it because I remembered <laughs> it as being him. Oh, he was in a lot of movies back then. You see him pop up all over the place. But pre, mostly pre-Dick Van Dyke show, you'll see him. But mm. yeah, I knew he looked familiar. <laughs> <laughs> so he says, oh, you know, thank God you're here. And then they open the door, and Kevin McCarthy just comes out, literally comes out swinging, just like pinwheeling his arms. He's like, yeah, you're going to listen to me. <laughs> yeah, you quickly find out that he's uh, Dr. Bunnell. Which uh, three, as we uh, go along through this series, three of the four versions at least have a Dr. Bennell in them. Yeah, he says that something's gone terribly wrong. And then we calms down a little bit so that we can talk, go into a flashback. Because you can't. <laughs> It'd be funny if he had kept that energy level up through the entire flashback. Just like, <laughs> and then I saw my old girlfriend. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, you have a train arriving. Once again, looking over the series as a whole, this is one of two in which somebody comes into the Invasion of the Body Snatchers after it's already in progress. This one in 1993, where, where it's taking place on a military base and like outsiders are showing up. In uh, 78 and 2007, they're sort of there from the very beginning. So you sort of miss like the very, the very first steps here that you get in some of those. But, you know, they were, they were just telling the story the, for the very first time. So they had to do with, you know, what seemed right to them. So he's arriving on the train. He gets met at the train station by his nurse, Sally, I believe. Yeah. A uh, married new mother, we find out. They, they just sort of drop that so that they can use that later. <laughs> and she apparently called him back from a medical conference uh, because he has uh, a whole bunch of patients who are demanding to talk to him, which is... Weird. I'll just say, just right off the bat. I mean, it's supposed to be a little weird, but it's just it just reads as weird. Like, a like, how long was this medical conference? Because he's been gone for two weeks. Like, how long were medical conferences in those days? <laughs> <laughs> I'm wondering if that wasn't a euphemism for something else. Yeah, exactly. You know, there's, there's no telling for sure. So it was in Las Vegas, and he was just planning to just take the month off and unwind a little bit after. Well, we know that he's oh. been to. We'll, we'll find out soon. Recently, soon that he's been to Reno recently, which meant pretty much one thing in those days. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then one of the patients who uh, Sally just rattles off uh, in general is Becky Driscoll. And uh, he tries to play it cool. And he says, oh, I thought she was in England. And Sally sort of like needles him a little bit about maybe he should be interested in her. And he's like, I, you know, I don't have interest in married, married women or you would have been a lost cause long ago, which mm-hmm. take that however you want to take it. <laughs> I mean, she seems to find it okay. But yeah, it's like, how's the baby, Sally? By the way, if I'd wanted to get you into bed, I could have. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, this, All the women in this, in this film movie. are okay with everything that's happening constantly. <laughs> 
And uh, that's something I did not realize when I watched this movie in my seventh grade film society. <laughs> but uh, now I'm very aware. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's a, that's a good idea. Let's get into our respective history with this movie. I like first heard, saw this movie in an American history class. It seems to be very common. It just seems like post-war American history here. This is what it is. This and then something about civil rights. And then I saw it a few times, but I had forgotten a lot about it. Uh, so to divulge this to the listeners, uh, we are recording these in the reverse of the order. It just happens that we're recording these in the reverse of the order you'll be listening to them in. I will actually be getting less and less informed as time go as, as we go through these. <laughs> so watching this, I had no idea, like, because I'd never watched this and the 1978 version in such close proximity to each other. So I hadn't re had no idea that the 78 one followed this one so closely in so many ways. But yeah, so... Saw it a bunch of times, but had mostly forgotten the details of it until just rewatching it for this. And Joe, when when did I first see this film? Yeah, it, uh, quite a while ago, when I was uh, under under twelve. Uh, my local YMCA would show science fiction films for all the kids, and so we'd go on Saturday afternoon, pay probably a quarter. Oh, and wow. I remember seeing this. And I think it was on a double bill with The Atomic Kid or some film <laughs> like that. But I definitely remember the I remember the pods. They were the thing that impressed me the most. Ooh. And uh, all the people carrying the pods. That was very creepy. But uh, so it was quite a long... I'm not going to tell you how many years ago it was many. It was, let's just say <laughs> I saw it not long after this thing came out. <laughs> um, I saw, as I mentioned, I saw this film for the first time... 11 years ago I was 12 I'm not ashamed to tell and I was in a film society club at my school and after school we would watch old movies or oh, wow movies. at 12 that's pretty good yeah it was really cool like I met my best friend that way it was just like you know we would watch movies mostly from pre-2000 like it started with Ghostbusters, and then you end up with Who Framed Roger Rabbit, and of course, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, <laughs> the classic canon of, of the film. And I remember it being a lot longer, and that says a lot, because this movie, I think, is incredibly short. I was just surprised by how quickly it all moved, and then, of course, watching it the other day, um, I realized they sacrificed a lot of character depth for the quickness <laughs> of the movie, so... I remember watching it and being really sad about how it ended. Just, mm. oh, everybody's lost to these pods. But honestly, this time around, I'm like, good. They didn't have much to live for anyway. So. Yeah, the film's a tight 80 minutes. Mm -hmm. um, something that'll mostly be just of interest to me. So was that Film Society, and was that a combined middle school and upper school Film Society? It was, was just, just a middle school. Oh, really? Great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Just, <laughs> it, it, by purest coincidence, Marjorie and I had gone to the same high school. So every once in a while, I'm like, oh, wait, was this still going on? Mm-hmm. All right, and John? Uh, well, here in Kansas City, we used to have a Saturday afternoon thing on our uh, CBS affiliate called Science Fiction Theater. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's where I saw almost all of the, like, you know, Godzillas and, and things like, of that nature, old classic science fiction films. Because they were not, while we rented as a family, we rented a lot of classic films from the video store because they were always safe, you know? Mm -hmm. um, this isn't the kind of thing my dad would have picked up off the shelf, so... I remember seeing it on science fiction theater probably when I was eight years old. So that puts you about 1982. And um, then later in college, so having just like a vague memory of it, later in college, uh, you know, my first film class, this is one of those things that came up as a very important example of, you know, metaphor in film and 
uh, like you guys are seeing an example of the time period, political time period in film. So really it was kind of two pieces, like science fiction theater, which I may or may not have even saw the whole movie that day, and then in college when I rented it in about 1993 or so. Okay. And, uh, yeah, I mean, honestly, I maybe have seen it once since then, too. So um, <laughs> it, it was great to get to rewatch it. I actually really enjoyed it uh, this oh, time great. as well. Yeah. Uh, so rejoining our narrative, he gets to his office and meets Grandma Grimaldi and little Jimmy Grimaldi, who's quite quite a work. Uh, one other th- thing I, I'm noticing in surveying the films, three of the four versions have a little kid amongst like the very first uh, people. Uh, every every version but the 1978 version, which has some kids in the background, but like, you know, it doesn't have a uh, my mommy is not my mommy, my daddy's not my daddy type kid. Yep. Just thinks that there's something wrong with her and doesn't want to go, also doesn't want to go to school, though I couldn't figure out how that worked in exactly. So the uh, the 1993 one uh, like has shows you what school like run by the body snatchers is like right? so you can look forward to that in a couple episodes and the, it actually leads to a really great moment in that movie so he's uh, screaming and running around and has to be corralled by Sally so that's apparently part of her duties. <laughs> And isn't there uh, a fruit stand also? Yeah, well, we're not quite oh, there yet. Oh, okay. Yeah, All so right. because we need to actually meet Becky Driscoll, which is another, uh, Driscoll is a name that's in almost every version of the Invasion of the Body Snatchers too. And uh, yeah, Sally volunteers so far as, you know, if you don't want to see her, there's something wrong with you. And they meet, and it turns out they're like childhood sweethearts who for some reason didn't end up together, married other people, and have both recently been to Reno to uh, get divorced. Which actually works in in an interesting thematic way on a later part, but also just sort of sets up this very conventional sort of second chance romance thing between them that persists like much longer into the film than you might think. <laughs> <laughs> that, that has its parallels in other ones too. But yeah, so she says that her cousin doesn't think that her cousin's uncle is her uncle, which... The, but the uncle isn't Becky Driscoll's father, which would technically be possible, but it's... a. Uh, it seems pretty, like, a little more complicated than it really needed to be. But uh, it's, it's like my uncle who was like a father to me, which se- seems like an interesting extra thing to throw in <laughs> <laughs> when you're trying to, like, you know, get hit the ground running on this story. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it gives people things to think of, you know, occupy their mind, you know, mm-hmm. while they're driving around. So, yeah, Becky Driscoll, who has a definite, like, transatlantic Audrey Hepburnish sort of vibe going on. She was living in London, so I guess that makes sense. Perhaps married some foreigner. Yes, yeah, constantly saying sort of like, oh, Miles. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Everyone's yes. an off-brand something. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, it's a, it's, it, this is a legitimate B movie. Yes. So like, that's what they used to do in the book. You know, just get me, a, get me a cheaper oh, version of this. All these, uh, all these characters were cast with bigger-named actors, too. Mm. Uh, oh, uh, really? Based on the previous budget. The budget got slashed, and that's oh. where you get the <laughs> off-brand. Because Vera Miles was supposed to play Becky, and Dick, I think Richard Dick Powell was supposed to play Miles. So you would have gotten these A-listers and a little bit more money. And Mm -hmm. so I think that's the reason it feels that way, because it legitimately was that way. (laughs) Gotcha. I would have missed Kevin McCarthy, because he's sort of like, there's a weirdness about him that like I think like helps with this whole thing. Oh, 100%. I don't think this movie would have worked with familiar people at all. I think the fact, I mean. voice, baby. Oh, so go ahead. Oh, oh no, I was just, I, I don't know if it's maybe just the way that the movie is set up, but it reminded me so much of Sunset Boulevard that I just couldn't stop thinking about <laughs> William Holden, just like yeah. him floating in the pool. Spoiler alert. Oh, yeah. like... <laughs> Another movie with a different beginning and ending than originally right. slated, yeah. Yeah. Although it was going to be a frame story either way, it's just depending right. whether it's coming from a pool or from a morgue. <laughs> <Yeah>. Right, <laughs> with talking corpses, right? Yeah, exactly. 
Well, she also has a somewhat crazy dress that to me looks like sort of like a, a, a thing of beer with a big piece with foam on top or something. Like that. Frill, that was definitely a dress the, for a younger woman the at the time. <laughs> so bizarre. I mean, she can wear whatever she wants. She looks great, but... <laughs> So we talk to her cousin about her uncle, who is not her father. And, you know, she's just basically that, like, you know, he remembers everything. You know, they've talked about, you know, she they give her various possibilities, you know, suggestions, you know, for you the how to find an imposter suggestions. And she's like, nope, nope, he passed. He knows everything. It's just the feeling is gone. This one is a lot more subtle than the others in terms of what exactly is missing from people. Yeah, I think that's an interesting. That was definitely one of my notes. Then speaking back to the, the fact that she's, this guy is like, oh, my cousin's uncle from another marriage or whatever it is. <laughs> I do think it was important that they add distance because we don't want Becky to be so close to this guy that she gets the same feeling, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Because, because there's something, there's a given thing here, that, the idea of the soul in this movie that I don't yeah. think you get from right. the other movies. There's, there's more demonstrable indications to what's wrong with these people in the other movies where here it's just the lights out right simple as that we all understand that everybody has a soul that's what makes them human when that (laughs) lights out we know there's something wrong and i think that's that's part of why we get that distance because becky has to have her doubts right right and yeah i guess that makes sense and without the soul even if you everything about you is the same even if you didn't talk in some obviously different way, like, yeah, it would be a terrible, terrible, evil war. Like, they use the, sure. they jump to the word evil pretty fast in this movie. Oh, yeah, um, yeah. Well, once they start believing. It takes them a while to start believing. There, um, there, there is a brief scene where they do characterize that the thing that is missing is something that makes them human. They actually use that word. And, yeah, uh, right. And it becomes... But it seems like it's only detectable life. to somebody who really knew them before. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, it's mm-hmm. very close relatives or Yeah, intimate, in other films, partners. I was... In some of the other films, I was actually pretty uh, disappointed with the protagonist for not being able to tell just by looking at somebody that they were different. So in a way that, in a way, it's better this way that you know mm-hmm. you're not constantly like, no, don't trust that cop, don't trust that mailman, don't trust that they've got that look. And of course, when you have a male doctor like going to check on this woman who thinks her uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah, they uncle don't... Ira isn't her uncle Ira, he's like. Psh. Hysteria, like I was going to say, they, they steer clear of that word for a while, at least. But yeah, yes. you, can, you can hear it when, without them saying it. Yeah. The uh, one thing that uh, this did make me that this one more than any other makes me think of, just because the people are so seem to be so close, or at least capable of pretending to be so close to what they were, is uh, a uh, a real life thing called Capgrass syndrome. Yes. Which is uh, basically it's kind of related to face blindness, basically, where you know. Like you can still see the detail, you know, the features of the person, but you're no, it's no longer registering in your mind as that person because of you know some because of something wrong in your head and uh, belief that some that your partner has been replaced by an identical imposter. Yeah, exactly, right? and it come and it comes from yeah this thing because like when you look at somebody who you know well, you're not used to like inspecting their features. It just like rings a little bell and you're it's like yep, yeah, that's that person. And if that bell doesn't go off, it can be very hard for people to deal with. Uh, dealt with. Uh, in most detail in the movie Vanilla Sky, in which Tom Cruise's, uh, they keep switching actresses on Tom Cruise's uh, wife to, to represent the fact that, and he keeps like saying, no, she's not her anymore and nobody believes him. Like they switch between uh, Penelope Cruz and uh, Cameron Diaz. So it's one of the many things that film is kind of about without ever quite being about anything, except maybe like 
the soundtrack is what it's mostly about being a Cameron Crowe movie. <laughs> so, um, oh, that's right. And then driving by that is when we actually, so we've heard about Mrs. Grimaldi and little Jimmy before, but we first see him when he runs out in front of the doctor's car, mm-hmm. which will be one of several almost auto accidents in the course of this film. <laughs> actually, there's a bunch of auto accidents. This is like, now that I think about it, every version of Invasion of the Body Snitches has like a fatal or near fatal auto accident <laughs> at some point, like that's very key to the story. But at, very, at different points. So, okay, so we, I've already sort of talked about Charming Little Jimmy. All right, so uh, he recommends Dr. Kaufman, uh, the local psychiatrist, which interestingly is one of the few names that is not brought over from this to 1978, which I'm wondering if that's because Kaufman was the name of the director of 1978, so they didn't right. want to, like, they thought that would be confusing. So instead he's Kibner in, in 1978 and played by Leonard Nimoy. I think we meet him in a car that almost backs into someone, doesn't it? Oh, yeah, that's right. They go to the supper club, (laughs) and, like, the car car carrying Dr. Kaufman and the other local doctor almost runs them both over, which would have saved a lot of trouble (laughs) later on. (laughs) And they're, uh, but they, you know, they they are either uh, two doctors who have had a three-martini lunch or doing a very good impersonation (laughs) of that. So we don't know necessarily whether they're taken over at this point, which is, this one, I'd say, more than any other. You have to, like, you really just don't know until, like, some loved one of theirs, like, uh, identifies them or you see them like with the mask off which you almost never do mm-hmm. one little uh note of from the time is that becky driscoll's aunt offers them spoon bread which is something i was not right. familiar with but and the doctor was like oh spoon bread but you know as if this was something like <laughs> like this huge temptation that he should steer clear of you mm-hmm. know for the uh, sake of his figure yeah it's uh, some sort of cornbread custard hot cornbread custard pudding ah yes of course <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, I'm sure it's delicious and probably looks terrible. Yeah. But... He didn't actually sound too tempted by it. He was like, ah, don't tempt me anymore. I got to go. Okay, thanks. <laughs> the doctor, he has a whole wall of pretense between himself and the world. That's, mm-hmm. that's what's wrong with us all, really. There's one point where he, when he's on the way to uh, try to find Dr. Kaufman, he's like, you know, I could start talking a lot of psychiatrical jargon at you, you know, but I don't really know what I'm talking about, which I, I, I think you could probably use that line in like a lot of movies. And it's like, you know, <laughs> we don't really know what the science behind this is. So we're just not going to talk about mm-hmm. it. And well, usually that. you just enter, you start a, a pseudoscience sentence and somebody stops you. It's and like says, speak, point, e- speak English, Doc. Yeah, they're <laughs> McClane, Doc. You know, that's usually what happens. This way they saved us that line, at least. Yeah. You see, plants make people go bye-bye. <laughs> oh, so the psychiatrist thinks there's some sort of contagious mass hysteria that lasts just a day or so, which is interesting since it's been, like, weeks that this has been happening. But the uh, this is, like, one of the more slow-mo invasions out of this, which they can afford to do, I guess, because he's coming in later in it. What's his reasoning for saying it only lasts a day or so? I can't remember. Well, it's, it's, it's like, well, he says something like, all I can do is treat the symptoms, but it seems like within a couple of days they say they're all right. Okay, so this brings up a question. Uh-huh. There was apparently a commentary done by director Joe Dante with, uh, with McCarthy uh-huh. and Winter, both there. It was recorded in about 2007. And um, McCarthy claims that the doctor is already a pod in this scene. Oh, to yeah, which, that's possible. Yeah. To which Joe Dante does not, apparently not agree at all. Oh. But um, him saying, oh, it only lasts a day or so, doesn't seem le- legit to me. Like, why would he, you know, how would he know? And it just right. sounds like he's trying to, like, lessen the hysteria. Oh, somebody's starting to catch on. Maybe I should just say something to... I mean, I think it's debatable either way. I mean, I, yeah. it could either be part of a strategy, although, I mean, to us it seems sinister because we know, like, kind of what the mechanics mm-hmm. are. But... Uh, Somebody else that might be, oh, okay. 
you know? Yeah. Right. yeah, I mean, I, like, just... I definitely got the impression he was a pod, but then at the same time, like, the level of gaslighting was very similar to the time, I guess. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it's funny, because I have the exact same questions about Leonard Nimoy in 78, which everybody will get to hear about next time. <laughs> and when asked, what, like, uh, why, he says, oh, worry about what's going on in the world, probably, which could be also the answer to why did you make this movie, you know, or why, is, why are people going to love this movie so much? So they say goodbye to our drunk driving possible alien doctors and have a brief chat outside the supper, supper club, including uh, the first kiss of their reacquaintance, I believe, which just, just happens. <laughs> 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 they go in there to eat. Uh, there's nobody else there. The proprietor seems pretty unhappy with this. Uh, they order drinks and then get a phone call from the doc's answering service that we've heard about before that he has to go tra- check out uh, the Belichicks, who are the next people we're going to meet. Like, don't even get to taste their drinks. Yeah, and I love the disappointed look on the guy's face. It's like, I got this one couple in, and I can't keep them. What's going on? <laughs> and you know that band. was an actor. He was like, here's my moment. I'm going to take a sip while it fades out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And he drinks both of those martinis, too. Oh, right? absolutely. Yeah. I, I think he needs There's them. No, he's like, why not? <laughs> he doesn't have a lot of future to look forward to, either. So <laughs> no, oh. he might as well. So yeah, we meet the Belichicks, uh, another recurring name uh, from one to another. So this is this would have been Jeff Goldblum in the 1978 version. Mm. In uh, this one, he's more of a, Veronica I would say, Cartwright. almost like a Ben Gazzaro meets Alan Arkin or something like that. <laughs> he's a bizarre <laughs> character in that film. Always talking over people. Uh, he's And he's the writer, which, you know, like, it's always great if you can work a writer into a story because then you can, as a writer, write what you know and <laughs> make him either like you or like somebody who you don't like. Yeah. <laughs> And uh, his wife, Teddy, who's actually a lot like Veronica Cartwright in the other one. Like, yeah, like mm-hmm. she, she could practically just be play the same, be the same character. Except, like, you know, like a, a more new agey version of her in 78. Mm-hmm. But, like, very close. So uh, he's like, oh, I've got something to show you. And, like, on his pool table, <laughs> in his rec room, <laughs> you know, is something under a drape. And then he gets the doctor to take the drape off. And there's just a body there, which the doctor diagnoses various things about really fast. And he's like, oh, look at it. It's have formed like a face um, that's been printed on a stamp but not detailed which... <laughs> yeah i love that line because like, wow, that, is, that is so perceptive like away. And my favorite is like i have a feeling that if i did an autopsy on this body i'd find every organ in like completely fresh condition and it's like wow you just saved us a lot of money right there you can just like touch the body and know yeah, he's almost oh. like bones in star trek or something just waves along yeah. <laughs> As his detector. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The whole interaction is so bizarre because they arrive and he's like, have I got a story for you? <laughs> and the doctor isn't even like, you interrupted my date with yeah. like this woman I haven't seen in five years. He's like, I guess I better go see what oddity this man has in his house. And then it seems like it's going to be this really fun time. But then his wife is like in extreme turmoil. Right. So I, yeah. it's... um. I don't know. It's, it's so weird. Uh, weird. And nobody thinks, I mean, especially given the relationship these guys have, nobody jumps to, like, what Nimoy suggests in 78, which is, like, you know, I think you, you're you going to have to face it. You have friends who are into practical jokes. <laughs> like, they just are immediately like, nope, it's a corpse. And, uh... Oh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah, so this is obviously pretty serious. <laughs> but he talks him out of, like, talking to the police. Like, mm-hmm. like we, I think we hear through the narration that this is the point where he's starting to get scared, but he doesn't want to let on to anybody else. Like, he doesn't want to feed anybody else's hysteria. 
and he asks Belichick to like sit up with the thing. Oh, they finally get their drinks, by the way. Like everybody just decides, okay, time for drinking a cigarette right now. And they take orders and everything. That's great. <laughs> the, uh... It's a, it's an interesting shot there too. It's like the, they mounted the camera on the ceiling and they have this big wide shot right. remember this was notable to me it looked like it kind of looked like a covered shot where you might shoot this just in case you can't get uh-huh. the and then they never cut to anything at all and i was like this is very, this is very kind of strange and uh and you can see the head of the body in the background but it works because it's kind of it's unnerving like they're just sitting there having drinks you can see the head of this weird uh, uh yeah corpse mm-hmm. in the background i'm like okay so it totally works it just doesn't look like it was intended to be that <laughs> shot anyway i just noted that shot i was like wow that's a strange setup there mm. Interesting. so having had their friendly drinks they leave the belichicks to watch over their little guest and uh, which yeah what was the strategy there maybe they use their they don't use their rec room very often and so somebody thought that like they wouldn't notice like this thing like just down there so takes becky home yeah he's already uh to her home and then we've had a certain amount of whatever flirtation i guess you might call it where it seems like he's basically trying to talk himself into bed with her it's a lot of sexual tension yeah it's like well she invites him in because it's dark in the house and then yeah then he's generating i think almost 100 percent of the sexual (laughs) well yeah she's she's, like i'm scared and he's like so you want to go upstairs like what's wrong with madness and then uh, there were some scenes where i could hear baby it's cold outside going on in the background and then her dad walks in and it's like you were trying yeah. this all out in a house she lives in with her father which i didn't i i didn't expect because when they heard something in the basement i was like oh my gosh somebody's in the house with them and then it's like oh hey dad i was like oh okay i got this wrong completely and her dad is basically the cheap version of like ernie kovacs from bell book and candle or something yes like, absolutely <laughs> Hey, how you doing? And he immediately sweeps his daughter upstairs. He's like, okay, clock walking. You're done. Exactly. Which, you know, makes it, you know, I might be tempted to do that if this guy But in the meantime, uh, we're back to the Belichicks. Uh, The wife says something creepy. Or, you know, like, suggests something that would be creepy. And that causes, somehow causes the husband to cut himself on it. Like, he drops a glass and immediately Mm. cuts it. it, it, the, The logistics of that were kind of unclear. Um, but it's mostly that he has to cut himself so that the body can start bleeding, right. uh, which is weird. But that's the, that is consistent, pretty consistent through the various versions. So. Well, the nosebleed is awkward in '78 as well, though. So. <laughs> exactly. So they just they don't even wait. They just go straight to the doctor's house. You know, it's like because he's because he's just going to tell them to stay there, and they do not intend to stay there. And he's like, "Oh, okay, I'll call Danny Kaufman," which is like, "No, don't do that, man." <laughs> <laughs> But I guess this is, he's still got just enough faith in, like, the system that he's going to try that. And we get, like, a, a little a nice little phone call between him and Danny Kaufman, which I wonder if he... Because if, he is a pod person by this point, definitely. And uh, if he's just pretending to, like, be really tired or if that's a put-on or something. But he's like, ah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I wonder, um, oh. is he acting? Is he acting like he's tired because yawning is <laughs> makes people tired? Oh yeah, oh, really like tired too. It's awfully oh, late. You should you should be in bed right now, don't you think? You know, so that given that part of, of their like we've got to stay up thing is to just keep downing cocktails. I don't know, right. like if you yeah, need a lot of it reminds me a lot of in uh, The Day the Earth Stood Still. There's this point where these two doctors, like you know, this guy, this seemingly alien guy, comes on, but it turns out he was like an abducted human. 
and they're like he's you know he's 50 years old or something but he looks like you know he looks like he's 30 and i don't understand how he's managed to stay young this long as they're like chain smoking cigarette after cigarette after cigarette right <laughs> they must have some secret alien way of not aging <laughs> spf <laughs> there you go so they, the Belichick's come to the doc's house. He calls the psychiatrist and then something they say uh, sets him off. And he's like, oh, my God, uh, Becky's in trouble. Because once again, he's much for farther along than he's letting on in the terms of this is all a problem. So he, then he goes, to, uh, breaks into her house in a way very reminiscent of Donald Sutherland breaking into the house in 78. And then finds the false her in the basement. Oh, and he's in his pajamas and like robe this whole time, which is kind of fun. And then he like runs up and can't wake her up. So he just sweeps her away. In this, like, sort of uh, romantic abduction-looking thing. I think even with the appropriate swell of music. So it could, you know, be from Gone with the Wind, for all we know. Mm. Then we go back, and Kaufman, much like I would say Ash in Alien, is being the uh, guy who does not want them to come to the the right conclusion. And is just, like, putting one thing after another in their way. Let's see. And they go to check out the bodies. Both bodies have disappeared. In a way that actually makes sense here, because they've actually left the bodies alone, whereas in, in other versions, sometimes they have to go to, like, more trouble to, like, try to explain how that happened. Um, and then uh, while they're checking on her body, there's just, like, a whole pile up in the basement, because, like, the, the dad shows up with a shotgun, the cop shows up. <laughs> Says that the body's, like, been found in a hay... You know, once he gets them to admit about the body, like, yeah, it says that the body's been found in a haystack. That somebody was trying to burn mm -hmm. it and gets on their case for not turning it in earlier. I mean, the cop in the window is just pure comedy. Yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah. it is a wonderful moment where I'm just like, what? <laughs> and you get an interesting amount of... Much as you do in this in the equivalent version uh, scene in 78, you get an interesting amount of back and forth between, you know, between the cop and the dad, the cop and Kaufman, and this is all just pod people talking to each other. Mm -hmm. And you wonder, is this, like, all a scripted scene, or are they, they're, like, improving it as they go, or is it an actual debate, as in, like, you know, like, you know, cop might be thinking, well, maybe the best thing to do would be to lock these people up. And the, and the psychiatrist is saying, mm. no, I know as a psychiatrist that they're not going to, that... You know, it'll be fine to let them go. And the dad's like, I just want to shoot somebody. You want to read intent. I think that, that the, the debate makes sense. Yeah. Um, that they would be, maybe a couple of pod people would disagree on how to deal with the situation. Um, at least it adds a little more drama to the scene. The, the cop is almost superfluous except for that information about the, the body, right? You kind of have to right. plant that seed of doubt in the audience. Uh -huh. And then the characters, of course, because we're totally bought in, right? At this point in the basement, we're like, yeah, 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 this is definitely happening. And then we got to get that one second. They want us to, to lull. And maybe in 1956, it was more likely that an audience member might actually go, oh, maybe they are crazy for a second. But uh, uh -huh. but you need the characters at the very least to, to kind of digress for a moment and think mm -hmm. that they are crazy. Or, you know, this thing would be right, just like a right. runaway train. The psychiatrist does have, do a pretty good thing with like the fault, like you know, the sort of stuff in the where the body was that kind of looks like a body at first. Yeah, mm -hmm. and he's like, "Oh, there's the body." And he's like, "Yes." And he's like, "Nope, there's not the body." Ha ha. Mm. Um, everybody just uh, seems to go to bed except the the Belichick stay over at the doc's house. I think, which uh, you know, it's it's nice how like in a horror movie, eventually you just have a commune where like everybody's <laughs> just like <laughs> because nobody wants to sleep too far from everybody else. Mm -hmm. Uh, so we go the next day, he uh, goes back to his uh, office, and little Jimmy's all back to normal. And the nurse, it seems like Sally's probably still human at this point, because she's kind of disbelieving of it. She's like, take a look at what you've got in, in what's going on here. 
And then uh, I think there's just a brief thing of that. And then it's basically night again. And we're back at the doc's house and like everybody's just sort of hanging out. Get some interesting. I kind of like the two couples, actually. I've got to admit, like the way they sort of like hang with each other. You could like both of the men flirt with the the opposite woman, you know, like, you know like, in that very serious sort of way. Like Maybe maybe the word doll was inconsiderate, you know, when she hands him the coffee. But it's like, thanks, doll. But he is getting coffee for his wife. So it's, it's not like she was giving it to him for him. And then they decide to have a uh, barbecue right next to his greenhouse. But in the greenhouse, as they, which of course involves more drinks, including like talk about like using the drinks as fire starter, but then like, nope, nope, just drink them. And uh, then we notice that there are pods in the greenhouse. Really gross looking bubbly pods. I mean, for the time, I think this was actually really well done. <laughs> yeah. I mean, especially as things start coming out of them, they're just really nasty looking. I mean, the 78 ones are better, but these ones are, st- these ones are good. I mean, it's incredibly <laughs> disturbing. I was disturbed, especially because the shots are so long that I'm just like, can we, <laughs> can we not anymore? <laughs> exactly. Because, yeah, the longer a shot like that lasts, the harder it is to say, like, no, no, it's just a special. But, you know, it's mm-hmm. like, because even if, obviously, it wasn't an alien thing, somebody had to make it do all of that. And that was probably pretty gross, even, like, you know, in person. Yeah. I like that in comparison to the 78 version where we open with a bunch of sci-fi effects stuff, right? Uh-huh. So mm-hmm. we get the planet that the spores come from. We get right. the plants with that flow effect of the tendrils kind of coming out of the center of the leaf. I like this yeah. because up to now, if you've never seen this movie or seen any version of it, it could be a pretty banal sort of swapping of essence or something, you know? And then right. suddenly we get this gross out scene and yeah, i think it's yeah, great it's, it's, it's really effective it's gooey yeah yeah <laughs> it's shocking and you're as shocked as he is right mm-hmm. you know that's the idea right, right. um where we're in the 78 version you know you're kind of already seen some nastiness and and you're not as much looking through their eyes when they discover it but uh, taking into consideration of course when you've made the movie in 1978 there's already been this one so right, you exactly it's so not gonna you're not gonna that. accomplish yeah. it yeah you can't you're never gonna accomplish the shock of this moment which is certainly, this is the moment I really remember from that after Saturday afternoon in 1982 or 83. Like, yeah. this is the part that <laughs> I don't remember much of the opening of this movie from that time. But this I definitely remember. And I especially mm-hmm. remember what comes later with the uh, pitchfork. That right. was that oh, was yeah. something. And that foam. <laughs> and the, the very uh-huh. fact that that foam is unnecessary. You know, that there's no particular reason to have that foam makes it all the better. You know, it's yeah. just like, you know, they have <laughs> space foam. Something organic. Oh, it's, yeah. it's just like sparks in Star Wars movies or whatever. Like you always, huh. you, whenever they're in a the, uh, hangar with ships, you have to have somebody welding something. So it looks right, like right. sci-fi stuff is going on. You know, oh, look at those sparks. Something's <laughs> happening here. It's like it, whatever effect you can come up with, it's cheap. Like uh, making foam, it it just shows something happening, you know, and it's right. kind of gross. And so they start uh, speculating about what's going to. It's like so okay, and now they're all on board. These things are growing. They're going to replace the person. Kevin McCarthy is always is pretty quick with his conclusions about things. So they're like, well, then what happens to us once these things grow? And he's like, oh, when the process is complete, the original is probably destroyed or disintegrates, which is perfect. Yeah, that's. That's got to be what happens, right? You know, and we don't get to see that happen until 78 and then over and over and over again in 93. But yeah, <laughs> and we don't really even know which of the two. It, well, we'll get to that later. So that that's his thought. And then uh, we find out through the course of things that Becky actually had had the same thoughts about her father that everybody else was having about their loved ones all along. She just didn't want to. She just thought it was her fault because she'd been away for so long. But yeah, so that's part of the problem. We all think it's our own fault. 
Uh, Doc wants to raise the alarm, but like every time, every person who anybody suggests to call, he doesn't, he, he, he shoots down and then he calls the operator and like wants to be collected to the FBI office in Los Angeles. Man. Oh, at some point somebody asked him where they think the pods come from. And he's like, so many things have been discovered. Atomic radiation on plant life and animal life, alien organism. And it's like, he's just summing up 50s sci-fi right there. Yeah. It's like, mm-hmm. well, here's all the things that like monsters have come from. Uh... I loved that part. It's just like, bruh. <laughs> I also loved the, like, switchboard part because it was so, um, just, like, erroneous and how, and how it was like, all right, try keep connecting and she's on the phone and, and she's like, do you want me to keep trying to connect? And Becky's like, Miles, uh, I don't know. Like, it's like, girl. I know you asked me to field this phone call, but you didn't tell me what to say. Yeah. Do you want her to keep trying or don't you? <laughs> Um, oh, and they say that they take your mind while you sleep, which, uh, that's, that yeah. gets me. That's to me, that's some yeah. scary, you know, what? real horror movie stuff to me. Just the and idea of was, going to sleep and waking up and you're gone. Not you, you And know, that was suggested earlier because there was like an eyes closed, eyes open thing amongst, uh, Jeff Belichick and his double earlier. Yeah. There's a uh-huh. point where he says, if they've taken over the telephone office, we're dead. And it's like, <laughs> guess what, dude? <laughs> the fact that she can't reach any city that you're trying to reach probably means that you should like move on from this particular. Yeah. Even when honestly, you should probably paper. just give up and become a pod person. To be honestly, honest. that's if if surviving means staying awake. I'm like, nah. Oh. Like I'm going to bed. <laughs> I, I need my rest. Well, there's it's nothing. A universal that... metaphor for human vulnerability yeah yeah mm-hmm. sure. so, which is probably why it shows up yeah yeah there. it's like yeah exactly it's a basically a mere human is up against a natural process that we just are not equipped to deal with uh, permanently you know in in sleepiness like extreme tired behavior in movies is such a visceral thing to me like i I can't stand it almost. There's a scene or there's a whole thing in the Billy Wilder, another Billy Wilder movie, Stalag 17, mm-hmm. where a guy tries to escape from the prison and the, the, he's captured and he's forced to stay awake for a certain amount of days. Mm-hmm. And they just show him and they make him stand up against this wall and he's so tired. And it always makes me want to just go to bed. Like I just, yeah. I get, I, I take on like so much empathy or whatever in those scenes. So the idea of like having to stay awake to stay alive is just maddening to me. It makes me like just want to go to bed. Let's just get it over with because yeah. it's never gonna work. Man, sometimes I was like rewatching these films to take notes, like like sort of after I'd done everything else for my day, and like just watching people like play sleepy when it's like you know it's like, I really just want to go to bed. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so well, he does have one halfway bright thought, which is that given that this operator is obviously. Not helping. As long as he's there to answer the phone, she'll think that they haven't started running yet. So he convinces the Belichicks to run off. But Becky, like, refuses to leave his side. Um, of course. Of course. <laughs> then they decide to take off. And, yeah, he has but – the, but then he decides to uh, destroy – maybe destroy them all. But, you know, he can't bring himself to destroy Becky's, but he destroys his own. Oh, big mistake. Big it's mistake. Just, what about like, that's, that's such a exactly. great moment. And in a way, really. is that mean you're like dooming Becky, but you're saving mm. yourself? Yeah it's, like, <laughs> yeah, it's a sad, ironic moment. He would have been, everything would have been okay somewhat. At least at that moment that comes later would not have happened. Yeah. Had he just done that. But because it's kind Maybe. of sweet, but the irony right. of it is that it yeah. actually doomed her. I love it. Yeah, and they stop for gas and... Uh... If you're not familiar with a uh, full service gas thing, but at the time, like, you know, they would like, you know, check your brake fluid levels and your spare tire and put pods in your trunk. 
So of course. it was just like 50 cents more a gallon, you know, or something like that. I just, uh, this is where I started getting so frustrated. <laughs> I mean, I was frustrated the whole time because it's a frustrating film, like just by the like conceit of it. But um, I was getting frustrated just because he's constantly like, Becky, wait here. Becky, wait here. But every time she tries to do something, he's like, no, like you can't. And it's just like, I I just got so frustrated because I'm like, she's gonna, you're, you're leaving her with these like pod people. Like, why are you assuming that she's safe if she's in the car? Or like by, by trying to control where her location is, she's safe. Like when she, later when he leaves her in the cave and, and she's literally passing out on him and he's like i'm gonna go check where that singing's coming from why would you leave her alone when you know she's about to fall asleep bruh yeah that's how i feel about it (laughs) that's how you could tell movies that were made by geeks versus movies that were made by non-geeks like yeah because geeks are always thinking like you know like especially if they've been role-playing gamers or something they're always thinking like okay we never leave each other alone you know, we, uh, we, you know, if our car is not big enough for everybody, we acquire a van. You know, <laughs> like, like, we all sleep in the same place. Mm-hmm. But not this one. Yeah, everybody's just. And also, like, hey, you couldn't make it out of town with the amount of gas in your car. Apparently not. He's like, well, our only chance is if I get Sally to help me. And it's like, I don't think that's a good idea. Yeah. But, you know, he doesn't even say how that. I mean, I guess the idea would have been that she would have, like, driven out and they would have, like, ducked down under the seats or something like that mm-hmm. because the cops might be on the lookout for them. But, yeah, we never get as far as, like, what exactly that that plan would have been. Mm-hmm. So he has a bad feeling about the uh, gas station guy right away. So they, they drive, like, j- literally just out of sight of the gas station and immediately open up the door, the, the trunk and pull the pods out. And then set them on fire. Like, these pods, he's willing to spend extra time, I guess because they don't look like people. And, by the way, he, like, lifts the pods by just grabbing them by one end and then and, and just pull it. And they look so much worse when you're doing that than, like, if you do, like, the two-handed. Because <laughs> it's, it's like you know this is just a piece of solid plastic. Yeah, know, a, a so solid light. Plastic. It's not something that's going to fall apart or bend or anything like that on mm-hmm. me. Plus, they have, you know, apparently weigh, like, about five ounces each. Or <laughs> right. He should have just called Becky and, like, Becky, it's you. Here's the pitchfork. Because there's something, <laughs> there's something very cathartic and, like, involved with our own self-loathing of stabbing, uh, yeah. like, a likeness of you. I think that'd exactly. be great every now and then, you know? And, you know, just think about one time, sometime when the Belichick's made you mad. I'm sure there was one. And then just yeah. stab them, you know, and then you'll, you'll get there that you out. Yeah. They do make it over to Sally's, uh, where there's like uh, some sort of commune going on. Uh, <laughs> and just them just sort of sitting around. And they, they brought a pod for her baby, which is interesting. The baby. The baby. <laughs> oh my yeah. God. There That's actually no, kind of shocking, right? Yeah, there will be no more tears. Which it's funny, I looked oh. up the Johnson Johnson baby shampoo uh, oh, yeah. slogan. Oh. As of 55, it was, uh, it was just like. Uh, the shampoo that can't burn eyes. Oh. And it actually says, uh, had the no more tears uh, slogan only since 1959. And the oh, way wow. they, the way they word that, I felt, it felt as if somebody had written that entry just for me. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. It's like, it sounds like wait, Don Draper like, got a hold of it. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, exactly. But I, I, it was like, a, it was like one of those, like, wait, I didn't give you my name type things. It's like, right. wait, wait, Wikipedia entry. You didn't, I didn't tell you that I was looking this up because of Invasion of the Body Snatchers, mm-hmm. but maybe so many people have that that's the, the reason that they put that in there. I also just want to say for the record that that is a complete lie. 
Oh, Johnson and Johnson, baby. That can't burn eyes. That's a lie. <laughs> Speaking from lots of traumatic experience. <laughs> oh, right. Marge is not afraid who she goes after. So. No. <laughs> Johnson and Johnson. She tells it like A family it is. company. Pfft, what are you talking about? So he gets seen from the back. Uh, I think it's the cop. It's somebody like walks up on him from behind and catches him snooping. And uh, he slugs them and takes off. Then, like, there's uh, the all points on them as they're trying to drive away. The cops are are, are uh, sitting at the hot dog show. <laughs> oh, yeah, we're I love take that. Just... <laughs> the hot dog show. <laughs> I forgot about that. I need I, to get a screen uh, cap been... of that. I assume that's a pre-existing place. I can't imagine any... they would call it that for any other reason. <laughs> I mean... <It's... laughs> and, uh... They head back to the doc's office because that's pretty much the only location we have we haven't burned yet uh they hide the car in the uh used car lot and he sl- he cleverly moves one of the used car lot stickers over from another car to the to his car <laughs> um drives much better than when he was going over to pick up becky where to show how panicked he was he just like tries to park but like just has a horror you can't park at less than a 30 degree angle and even then goes <laughs> up on the curb and it's like <laughs> They go to the doc's office. Uh, immediately, somebody checks with a flashlight, and they hide in the closet. And the, whoever it is doesn't check the closet. And then they come out, and she's like, do you think they'll be back? And he's like, I don't think they'll check here again before morning. And it's like, he is so quick on a, I guess that's part of being a doctor, is just whatever your gut feeling is, just say it as if you know it to be true. I guess. Yeah, we're, we're, you're missing some great shaking of the head from Margie. Hey? <laughs> I mean, you can't comment on psychiatry or anything like that. But as far as the behaviors of other people, and if they're going to check where you're uh, hiding the, totally totally uh, fully know the truth right, about right. that well he could it's, spout a bunch of psychiatric jargon he's just not going to in this yeah. case somebody has to be real ex- expeditious with the exposition in order to make in order to make an 80 minute movie come on yeah, like, exactly. it, it, it's true movie in a brand new genre where every absolutely everything has to be explained right. that's true let's see uh McCart- kevin mccarthy gives them both stimulants to keep them awake it's about time <laughs> Uh, I don't know. Apparently, doesn't pack away more for later, which is too bad. And then we get uh, the philosophizing, which is necessary. To, it has to come up at some point in each of these. So he's like, "In my practice, I've seen how people have allowed their humanity to drain yes, away." There it is. Um, which it's interesting. It's kind of the the opposite tack here from seventy eight because in here it's like he's sort of like being the sort of new agey. You know, our industrial society has just like turned us into pods already. So is there really a difference? Type thing. Mm. Whereas in uh, the other one, it seems more like the pod people are the ones who are like, you're, you're, you know, like Nimoy and things like that. It's like, he's like, no, you shouldn't let your humanity drain away. You should be, you know, mm-hmm. you should be feel, every, you know, the moment of everything like us, the pod people. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see. And then uh, I forget, they say some soft thing to each other and then the lights fade, which I just always assume like in a, if there if there's more than one person in a scene in a black and white movie and the lights fade that they had sex between them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> It's a safe assumption. Yeah, exactly. It's only missing like some curtains waving or something. Usually there's like curtains waving or something. <laughs> Which that, that can be great. That can actually cause you to read more sex into these movies than there was intended to be. Even <laughs> <laughs> then they can have like the, I forget. I, I told people that rule before watching Big Sleep in the first time forever, like with them. And like, mm. there's a scene like halfway through where uh, Bogart is talking to his friend from the, his one friend amongst the cops. And the friend is like, so do you want to go see that body tonight? And Bogart's like, no, let's go to bed. 
and then like, <laughs> and like I had never noticed that exchange wow. before, but I'm never going to forget it now. I am into that. Yeah, absolutely. Somewhere there's a very early slash like written on a, like a portable typewriter somewhere. Uh, let's see. Then it's the next morning. Uh, you know, they sort of look through the shade, which is something that he had done on the first day. Um, we see a bus show up in a fairly chillingly uh, simple version of four people get off the bus. People are just like escorted straight over to a police car. Oh. Police car drives them away. And uh, one kind of confusing thing, I thought that the police car was driving away with its siren on, which mm. would seem kind of weirdly discomforting to the people. You just I'm like, also, who's going to get it? Why do you need the siren? But I think the siren was actually there to then summon everybody to uh, right. show up. And then we have the really well choreographed scene of just every people from like all points of the compass just walking towards yeah. the center of town. A Morlock thing. Yeah. <laughs> Trucks show up, just piled up with the pods. And uh, Kevin McCarthy goes, farmers. <laughs> the chilling, <laughs> chilling occupation. Well, I guess it is if these pods are in yeah, play. Exactly. It's like, it they're the pods. most dangerous people in the world. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, it's great how like something can be recharacterized. Like Donald Sutherland in the 78 version, at one point he goes, ships. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, farmer's definitely bad news in this case. And one of them is Mr. Grimaldi. Oh, yeah, who we sort of skipped over. Another, like, closed business, like, really early on was his fruit stand, which was, like, in disrepair because he wasn't using it anymore. And then everybody's asked if they have families or friends in various neighboring towns, and those who do are given pods. And then at the end of it, I kind of like, that's all for today. Be ready again tomorrow. So apparently at this point, how fast they can grow the pods is the limiting factor on how how, how fast this can spread. Also, that uh, we find out, as in pretty much all versions of this except immunities, the, the... Aliens don't have any kind of like hive mind or something right. like that. They actually have to communicate through through speech and have to have some kind of organization or hierarchy like kind of imposed on them. Even if they're like very willing to submit to it, there has to be something like that there. Just the sort of thing I take note of. We hear Belichick out in the hallway and they're seemingly about to like give up on them, so they open the door. Like he doesn't even break in, they just open the door. And then he walks in and uh comes in and we get to see taken over version of Belichick because he's there with the psychiatrist. And he's one of the first cases where we really get a good look at both both sides of somebody who's been taken over. Mm -hmm. We had sort of gotten to know his previous version. I just want to say McCarthy does an excellent job of conveying relief. When oh, he when hears he comes that, in? there's something about that. Like I know better than that. This is good, but he makes me believe it for just a second. Mm. Like the way he's, oh, it's Joe is so perfect. Mm. And I'm like, yeah, I could, I could feel that in that moment, which <laughs> makes it just a little bit more disappointing, even though I know yeah. it's coming. Yeah. Well, I think it's kind of what Marjorie was saying about how, like, you know, you are boned from like a really early on. In yeah, this yeah. Movie. So no, like, you... <laughs> even if this is ninety percent chance that this is bad, the ten percent chance that it's good is possibly better than the what the, what you thought your odds were before. Sure. <laughs> yeah. And then we get uh, the uh, psychiatrist, as in other versions, gives the one little tiny bit of exposition about what's really going on. Seeds from outer space took root in a farmer's field, and so all that happened long before uh, our doctor was back from his thing. It actually uh, sounds a lot like uh, one of the seminal H.B. Lovecraft stories, *The Color Out of Space*. In which uh, an alien speed comes down and takes root in a farmer's field. It doesn't actually cause like a body snatcher type outbreak, but uh, it doesn't cause anything good to happen. <laughs> but uh, but that was apparent. I, I I would bet that that was the the ultimate influence for this, and also that uh, story has been made pretty badly into movies like many times uh, mm-hmm. since then. 
Uh, the worst one being one called The Curse, starring Will Wheaton from the oh. 80s. Um, wow. Let's see. Yeah, I'm willing to call that the worst one. <laughs> I don't care how many there were and how many Isn't countries. Isn't this also the point where they try to make a pitch for the pod lifestyle? Oh, and sure, life, sure. Life is going to be a lot less complex and frustrating and uh, everything's going to be smooth and you don't have to worry about all the... The anxieties. Of yeah, exactly. Humanity. And they make one, and, and you find out why one thing was set up, which is like you know, because when they're talking about, but is, is, there's no love. Yeah. And he's like, "You've tried love, it didn't last you know, <laughs> because they're both divorcees." Right. Yeah. Try it. You like it. Well, I think the divorce. Uh, you brought that up earlier that it would play in thematically. I assume you mean right here. Yeah, exactly. Um, there's also the the factor of you get, why are these two people. The ones that fight so vehemently against yeah yeah exactly you would this. think they would be the opposite right it, I I think that the fact that they're both divorced in 1956 um, is also meant to convey a certain amount of uh, lack of con- conformity in them as uh, mm. characters I see, gotcha. like I, I think that they were very individualistic um, falling into line getting married and staying married no matter what doesn't you know didn't occur to them like they actually took the step of uh, towards individuality or reestablishing their individuality outside of the of marriage and went and got divorced right so i think that there's something to be taken from that too as right. why are they the last men and man and woman standing here because um, i asked myself that as i was watching i was like you know what is it about these two why are these the mm-hmm. two they're the only two and it didn't occur to me until today, kind of reevaluating it. I was like, oh, the divorce thing is an interesting, could be the suggestion, hmm. it, it, at least, you know, to feed into the th- thematic nature of the movie as well. But Yeah, that's true. That could sort of that, indicate, like, where in the culture war, like, this film mm-hmm. actually does fall, even if it's trying to, like, kind of hide that. So they say, do you want to watch the pods grow? They say, no. And it's like, okay, we'll just put them in here <laughs> where they will be taking you over cell for cell. And it's like, you know, if you were trying to be calming, you just like, that was a, yeah. that was a poor choice of words. You could have said replicate, you know, copying you cell for cell, but it's, it just doesn't work mm-hmm. that well. And then they'd leave them alone. And it's like, and I think she, I think Becky's the one who's like, why didn't they give us a shot? <laughs> She's like, you know, why, you know, because if they don't give us a shot, I have to keep fighting, you know, whereas if they did, I could just go to sleep and pretend that this was all a nightmare. And, uh, and he's like, oh, it dulls the, maybe drugs dull the mind, which I'm wondering what, you know, if that slows down the process or would mean that your copy would be a bad copy or something like that. That's like, you see, I always, I always want to know these things. What if your what if your copy's in the uh, you know is in the same condition you were in when it took you over? So if you're if you're like real high on drugs, it's just always high on drugs forever. <laughs> if you get made into a vampire, you're stuck with whatever hairstyle you had. Right, <laughs> right. What is it? Am I missing something? Why do they leave them alone in the room? Like, why do they? That's the one part where I'm like, huh. <laughs> well, all of the in the body snatchers are pretty much pacifists on some level. It seems right. like. I think they don't want to just like, you know, fight them kicking and screaming if they can avoid, you know, if they're willing to just be locked in this room, they want to just lock them in this room. I mean, because I don't think in this one, I don't think that you see them use any violence at all other than the inherent violence of the body snatching process itself. The chase, yeah, it makes you question what they're doing later when they're chasing them in mass. Like, yeah, what, exactly. So are yeah, they just going to surround them, I guess, and make sure they don't get away? Yeah, but you're that's right. Once... You deal with with pretty, in pretty much all the movies is like you know they you know they're they're going to sort of just press in on you, and uh, mm-hmm. 
possibly hit you with a car, but that, that we still don't know what happens to Kevin McCarthy in 78. Yeah, that um, one does seem a little, that, I guess you're supposed to assume it's an accident, but he yeah, was basically exactly, running into traffic. Yeah, because he was, in fact, you know, running, I mean, like, because Sutherland very nearly hit him with it, with his car, too, mm-hmm. so, so somebody had been just a little less attentive could, could easily have just run him over. Yeah, and, the, and he's being chased, but, you know, they kind of chased him into traffic, but there's... <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, doubtful it's, it was intentional. And Sutherland has the line, the police will take care of it, and shortly after that he gets hit. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, so then he uh, goes to his cabinet and starts pulling out his scalpels and uh, <laughs> starts doing the math, like, as only Kevin McCarthy can. It's like, I picture him almost like uh, Robert Downey Jr. Sherlock Holmes and how he figures out ahead of a fight exactly how the fight's going to go. It's like, okay, I could take out two... I couldn't take out three. And then Becky has her nice speech. You're forgetting something. It isn't three against one. It's three against two. And then he gives her a you're a silly woman look. And <laughs> just, it's What, terrible. you want agency or something? Come on. Like. Oh, man. Just I'm like... not giving you a sharp object. <laughs> <laughs> Although he does give her a syringe, so that's cool. For, right, for, right. Like, we actually have a syringe fight later. It. Yeah, and she uses it. She, but she performs it, and they manage to take out all three of them. Fortunately, uh, apparently uh, tranquilizers do work on the pod people, which is something I don't think has actually been established in any other movie. Hmm. Um, but, you know, Kevin McCarthy knows these things. He's a doctor. So then he's like, our only hope is to make it to the highway. And it, which is the first time I think we get the idea that this town is a bedroom community for Los Angeles, basically. That, you mm-hmm. know, that the highway goes by and it's just like a river of cars. Oh, and then also another one of him just jumping to, it's like, keep your eyes wide, a little wide and blank. Show no interest or excitement, which is not something we've really seen from most of the others. Maybe he's doing that based on looking at Belichick, since that's the only real scientific one we've had where he could really say, okay, this is what he used to look like. This is what he looks like now. I don't know. Well, the uh, the lack of joy and emotion speech from earlier, I guess that's the only characteristic he really knows. But it seems oh, like so they can show emotion. Like it, but maybe now that they've taken over the town, they wouldn't be. And then everything would have gone right, except for the world's happiest dog trying to cross the street. <laughs> Another moment I'm sure you loved. <laughs> <laughs> oh Almost getting runner. And then, uh, yeah, and then the girl gives it away. And uh, yeah, there's a much hyped up, ver- souped up version of that in 78, which I won't get into. <laughs> but in this case, it's just a happy dog almost run over. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes. She is like, very, I mean, I love a dog. Yes. I mean, don't get me wrong. But she <laughs> is like, whoa. <laughs> she just assumes. Maybe it's because she knows that pop people are driving, and so she doesn't think that they're going to stop for the dog or something. It's, I don't know. Maybe. Or she's just, it's just dogs are her, her weakness. <laughs> so she, she screams, and then the cop looks at them a little funny. And then, like, proceeds to, like, walk back to where they came from to make sure that there's something wrong, which I find that an interesting point of character for the aliens. They're not very suspicious, really. Mm-hmm. You know, they're, they're fairly easy to, uh, he's not really, even though he has reason to, he already has reason to think that they are, like, you know, that things aren't going according to procedure. He's going to go back and make sure before he makes any war- unwarranted accusations that they not going <laughs> to say they are. Yeah. That's a very 50s idea of a police officer. Right? <laughs> yeah. oh. Well, they are right. <laughs> that's true uh, yeah you want the chase to start right there I, I, exactly. every time I've seen this movie I'm like dude they're clearly not yeah, right. they were. Go get I them. guess you need to give them enough of a, of a head start that they'll be able to credibly get away from an entire town full of people <laughs> oh my god and they go right. up these staircases and it suddenly becomes very much more uh, South, Southern California to me We've looked at from one side everything's like these terraced gardens and then as soon as you take one step beyond it it's desert you yeah, know, it's, it's just like, like a little wild desert. Yeah. 
I I love this chase up the stairs. I it's oh, slightly yeah. it's slightly comedic, but mm-hmm. oh yeah, so like, much so just be, like pushing themselves, like, yeah, like squeezing themselves under that it, one stairway. Yeah. yeah, it looks like a, a Monty Python skit or something. A little <laughs> bit. It, but but that makes it kind of creepier in a way because when you think about it, it's like wow, they just like are hardwired to go get those guys. So yeah, much exactly. so that this this doesn't even make sense that this many people would do it. <laughs> and they're all using yeah, it's basically they're all using the same pathing algorithm. You know, sort of like yeah. figures in a video right. game or something like that. They all they all know this is the best way but they don't take into account like the crowding factor that maybe they should go on alternate routes allegory (laughs) yeah exactly exactly and then the doc carries her into the cave which means our romantic abduction has turned into something more prehistoric it's supposed to be like an old gold mining game fortunately it's been fitted out with a millennium falcon style smuggling compartment like right inside <laughs> and so they hide under those boards and i really like the uh, the look upwards through the oh. boards as everybody's like walking over them you know it's, like, it's it great be very convenient viewing slats so you can even see I, everything that's going on even if i was only just hiding as a joke or something i think i would be scared on the underside oh i'd be afraid God, those things sure. are going to give way yeah, so yeah they're, that's true. they're really wobbly and it's scary like it's and i and i feel like this is pretty innovative i don't no, in 1956, there's been a lot of shots like this, you know? Yeah, I mean, maybe from film noir, basically, would be yeah. the... Well, that's where... Really much... There's so much film noir DNA in this movie, we haven't even mm-hmm. talked about yeah, that at all. true. But, um, yeah, you, maybe, yeah, the uh, Gun Crazy uh, would be a movie I can mm-hmm. think of where the camera... The, uh, you have that subjective camera, and the camera's put in some weird spots. But, um, you know, this is, this is really cool. I think this is a very... Uh, it's a scary little moment here. Where everybody's running right over their faces, and uh, I think it's great. 1956, mm-hmm. pretty innovative. Yeah. And it brings to mind my favorite shot from 78, where they're, uh, it's like a horizontal version of that, where they're on these stairs where the, the slats are separated, or the steps mm-hmm. are separated, and you can see their eyes through the forest, and you know exactly where the they're stairs, hiding. Yeah. And then once again, like the aliens come in, aliens go out, and uh, you know start looking at other places, and then you hear church music. <laughs> Which, they're like... Wow, that sounds like safety. And I'm like, uh. Sounds to be like a trap. Yeah, right? And it's just kind of like, I don't know. I'm just really shocked by how they're like, that means we're okay now. Yeah, it's a stretch. There's a lot of stretching here in the third Mm -hmm, act mm -hmm. of this movie, I think. But once again, they are sleep deprivation. And they are sleep deprivation and they are grasping at straws at this point. And, Mm -hmm. uh, and it, uh, uh, mimics the uh, or it, it it parallels the uh, when you suddenly hear Amazing Grace in the seventy eight version, mm. which then leads mm-hmm. to the ships line. <laughs> so yeah, he goes there, and the farmers are all listening to an all music station while they pick <laughs> pods, which is interesting. I mean, does that mean that aliens actually appreciate music, or are they like the Dawn of the Dead zombies and they're just doing stuff by rote that they mm. used to do? Or it's good for the say. plants. That comes Setting back in the 78 version. <laughs> like, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And this is the point at which he leaves her oh, in yeah, the you're cave right. while she is leaning on him, <laughs> closing her eyes. I would be like, okay, like I got to wake her up because she's like laying on him, like languishing on him, about to fall asleep. And he's like... You gotta wait here. You cannot come with me. Just, It'd be uh, funny if he left and then he's like, I had to ditch Becky. She was out. Yeah, right? Because when I, I had like forgotten like the next point, but like when he returned, I was like, she's asleep. She fell asleep, you know? But mm-hmm. it's much funnier how it goes down. The narrative imperative. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, he comes back. She's not where... Uh, 
he she he was expecting her to be, and eventually hear like I'm here, Miles, uh, very sleepy, and so. Now, this is a point where, much as in like certain alien sequels, I feel as if they've forgotten the rules of their own universe. Yeah. Because <laughs> if she's still human when she says, I'm here, Miles, which she seems to be because she's super sleepy, mm-hmm. then how could she not be human when like he doesn't lose sight of her the whole rest of the time? Because like, cause the aliens don't take you over. They grow a body to replace right. you with. Like, where was her pod body yeah. that... Yeah. Okay, so presumably, okay, <laughs> this is my like cobbled together logic, and it's not it's not sound by any means. But, uh, the pod, the the unkilled pod person from the greenhouse, apparently followed them from a distance. Oh, it it, it can it like, had hold to have, on right? her or something. It like had that? to have right. That's the only way this makes sense. And was nearby, and she fell asleep while he was gone. Yeah. Oh, okay, and so then, she is already replaced yeah. when he gets back. I think it's got to be that way, because and then, and then I guess the pod person has the presence of mind to pretend. Now, that's where I'm questioning whether that's within the rules of a pod person. Like, do they, they don't seem well, to do that. Well, one thing, in this version, we've never seen a pod person, like, brand new, how it operates. So it could mm-hmm. be that they're groggy. Could be. Just yeah. like you are. And they are just waking up, too, right? Right. Exactly, and so yeah. it takes a minute for it to like shake off that. That makes a lot more sense to me, just in general. It's the only thing I can't think. Of. I've been thinking about it all yeah. day today. <laughs> this is the one part yeah. that the director really certainly didn't accommodate us. I mean, that right. makes a lot. I I think because that actually tracks a lot when they kiss and why yeah. he pulls away because that yeah. would definitely be a moment if we're talking about the soul and everything that you would recognize like the your partner is not your partner because probably right. a pod person doesn't know how to kiss so it's probably really bad but i really liked to believe that that was the moment and she he's just not that good of a kisser and she fell asleep like i, just, <laughs> like, I love that there's no spark at all. Yeah, there. no spark. Exactly. She's just like, all right. Exactly. <laughs> but that makes a lot of sense, actually. Yeah, but she yeah, kissed, I think she kissed him, and it was so bad that she's like, oh, yeah. obviously he became a pod person. <laughs> yeah. I might as well just go to sleep now. But I'd say whether we're right or not, we do win the uh, put more thought into this than the filmmakers did. Because <laughs> I think they might have just forgotten, or maybe it's because like, they have equivalent scenes to this in 78 and 93, but both of those require nudity. Because, like, you know, because the woman, because the woman, like, disintegrates, and then, like, you know, pod version of her walks up, not, you know, doesn't wear her clothes. Because that's the other thing, while he was out, like, listening to his music, like, she must have come in, stripped the old body, unless the old body disintegrates or something like that, that, and then put put the clothes on. Maybe it's just as simple as it's the climax of the movie. The, the, director, <laughs> the director's saying, "Willing suspension of disbelief. Let's move on." Yeah. It's like eighty minutes. We've got to, this. Is going to yeah. be room for a double feature and yeah. two cartoons mm-hmm. on this thing. Yeah. Nobody's going to add the thing in in screenwriting. You call uh, POI or plausible off-screen information. It's like yeah. Yeah, exactly. you can do a little bit of the work. There's something that can be explained <laughs> here. I don't have time to do that for you. We don't want to yeah. show a scene where you know. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, he runs off. She shouts after, he's in here, get him, which is their equivalent of the scream from 78 and 93. And then we get, like, I find the most unintentionally hilarious bit of narration, which is, I didn't know the meaning of fear until I kissed Becky. (laughs) (laughs) That should be the first line of a story, not the last line of a story. So funny. (laughs) (laughs) And then he's like, I ran. I ran as little Jimmy Grimaldi had run. So he's, 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 uh. 
for reverting being to childhood exhausted and full of adrenaline retelling this story is full of like rhetoric and like <laughs> illusion <laughs> yeah that's one problem with this whole frame story is like squaring that guy with this guy right but in a way uh, it indicates that like you know since little jimmy grimaldi ran up to him almost got run over told him what was happening he didn't believe him right so he is now in the position you know so that you know not only is he now in Grimaldi's position, but he was then in the position that those drivers he's about to run into are, are now mm-hmm. in. Right. So he's not any better than them. That's true. Then he makes it to the highway somehow, which turns out not to have been all that far away anyway. <laughs> mm-hmm. So probably he and uh, Becky could probably have made that if they, if they tried. <laughs> and they think about going after him, but they'll never believe him. And maybe they're more willing to let him run away as a sole person than as like two people with one corroborating the story of the other. Mm-hmm. Tries to stop cars and then, like, goes into the whole, like, they're not human, you're in danger, they're here already, you're next, you're next, you're next, which was the original ending of the film. Mm. Yeah. Did not test well. I honestly think it would have been better that way. I just, uh, I mean, I'm okay with the bookends, I guess, but right. um, to me, this, I like... Yeah, I don't know if you could lose all the narration and have the film still work. I, I Maybe, maybe not. It would be an interesting comparison. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. Um, but... I'll tell you, I don't have a whole lot. It's supposed to inject hope in you, the ending mm. and the. Yeah, I don't get it. I don't think they're well, going to win. I think they're doing about that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, let's get let's get to the through the ending and then we can sure. talk about that. Sure. So like we're back to the frame story. He finishes. Uh, they walk out. He's like, "Don't just stand there measuring me for a straight jacket," which just sounds like <laughs> such a period film sort of thing. And then they walk off, and they're like, "Whoo boy!" And their their one question is, "Do you think psychiatry could help?" As opposed to like you know just locking him up forever, I guess. And then they bring in this new body, who's theoretically the truck driver we saw before, because like the, the he jumps on the be- he jumps on the bed of a tr- back of a truck at one point, and then sees it's full of pods, and, and they're like, oh, you know, what's wrong with him? And he's like, oh, crushed his, he crushed both crushed of his legs pods. and his arms, and you know, I had to dig him out of this crazy thing, and then everybody's like. What thing? And like, once again, they seem to be jumping to conclusions awful fast, but mm-hmm. I guess maybe they're kind of spooked. Mm-hmm. And then he's like, well, they were kind of like big seed pods. And then the psychiatrist turns to the two cops who came in with him, and he's like, go out there. Like, you know, close down all you know all entrances to the city. You know, like, alert the governor. Call out the... You know, I've got all the evidence I need. And like, so, we're like two random guys, <laughs> and you're a psychiatrist? I, I don't know what exactly was supposed to happen. They were going to throw away the key, man. They were going to fit One second ago. One <laughs> suggestion. They go completely the other way. It's crazy. Yeah, exactly. Excellent. And then we yeah. end on Kevin McCarthy's insane face. So he's like, <laughs> way too long of a shot. Yeah, like, exactly. But he's like, I'm off in la la land, like, no matter what happens at this point. You know, it's like, true. But as an actor, I can just imagine him. He's just standing there and he's like, okay, are you done? <laughs> uh, and I love when they're like, oh, yeah, he's got his legs crushed, whatever. And then the doctor's like, bring him to the OR. Like, <laughs> like so casual. So speaking about the hopefulness of this ending, it, it seems entirely possible. Well, one thing, both of those highway patrol guys like seem very blank faced through the through all of this, and it's oh. almost certainly because they're they have no lines and they're <laughs> just extras who are paid to be there. But it could be that like maybe only one person out of those four people is human at that point, mm-hmm. and the others are just like having this be a test to see whether the fourth one unders you know like either the either the the doctor in white or the psychiatrist could be the only human there. You never know. But it seems as though we're intended to, in 1956, walk out of the theater and say, there's hope. Yeah, exactly. uh, There's a possibility. Whereas in 1978, it's like, we're screwed. Yeah. Nihilism wins. 
Um, I think there was a, whether it was conscious or not, or specific to this, uh, I think they just wanted the audience to leave thinking there were still some institutions intact. You know, because they, they go through, you got a psychiatrist here, you got some cops, they talk about the governor, you know, it's just like, let's just make sure that they don't walk out of this theater thinking that everything is corrupt, you know. Right. Um, mm-hmm. It was something like that, because to me, this seems real slapdash. Um, it and, and It is. It was shot in one day. It was just like right. thrown together, shot in a day, both both bookends. And uh, those those cops probably were just extras off the lot. You know, uh, and so it just feels that way to me. But to me, I, when I see, you know, they put the credits up over McCarthy, uh, uh, I'm like, nah, like they're screwed. I, I don't get at all any hopefulness out of this. Like, this just seems like one more last ditch. And also, yeah. what's that ending going to be? Because yeah. are they just going to like bomb that town or something right. like that? Because it's like, or are you going to like, you could, you could have a truce where it's like, okay, like this one town, you aliens can live here, but you know, you're not allowed to like move beyond this and no pods. You know, you don't you don't grow any pods, but you can just like live here. That'd be an interest. Somebody if somebody out there wants to make like immunities in reverse, they could like have it be that mm-hmm. <laughs> invasion of the body snatchers two, where the fa- farmers. Oh fight yeah, there back. you go, like a yeah. true sequel. <laughs> it's like the farmer. You have to attack the farmers, but yeah, yeah. yeah there's a, a movie out there that uh, it, it's called Exile: Children of the Wasteland, which is an uh. interesting thing, movie about a. Uh, uh, like very very low budget movie, but a lot of thought put into it about a uh, this this isolated town where uh, a body snatcher invasion happened and just never spread beyond the town. It can only affect adults, so like you grow up all the way through your teenage years being raised by pod people and then get turned into one when you're eighteen. Mm. It's, a, it's a thing. Mm. So worth worth looking up. Available on various streaming services. So that is the end of the movie. An enjoyable movie, I would say, if for all yeah. of its flaws. And obviously, they had to sort of invent everything, or you know, adapt it from a story for the first you have to film for the first time for this movie. So mm-hmm. you know, I cut it slack in that direction, certainly. And you know, so, certainly captured some spirit of its time. Yeah. So now the story ends, right? The Collier's story, the novel. Oh yeah, um, I, know, I know nothing about that story. It ends with the humans. So I think that this positive ending in the movie actually come comes from that somewhat. Because as I understand it, I've never read it, but as I understand it, the ending, they, they all give up. Yeah, I need to get going. Yeah, oh, okay, that's fine. Okay, sure. All right, well, thank you very much for joining yeah. us, John. Yeah, thank you for having me. Uh, and uh, where can people find you on the internet? Oh, you could, uh, just come over and listen to Alien Minute. Yeah, and I re- recommend everybody do that. Yeah. Okay, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, sorry for the various technical delays. <laughs> Bye. Nice to see you, John. So now uh, we're going to talk a little bit about immunities and its relationship to them. Some things about this that uh, I thought about immunities one way or the other about. You know, it seems as if the individual personalities have more uh, influence on the per- on the pod person than in some other versions of this, which, you know, in immunities, that, that's one of the big points is that, you know, there's always the, the pod person version or the, the looker version is always some kind of reflection of the original person, you know, even if very changed. You know, uh, some people, you know, it's only this season, like with Molly and that we and Candace, that we didn't really get a chance to see what the earlier version of them was like. But uh, it is interesting that in this one, you know, they seem so diverse. Although, once again, you know, we only see them by themselves a couple times. And at that point, they seem a lot more potty. But they're at least capable of seeming like the real person much more so than uh, the other ones. Another one is that they seem to have interests as we went along, you know, like they still keep smoking tobacco, which, you know, that could just become part of the disguise. But the farmer 
the farmers who are listening to the music, like there's, as far as they know, nobody around who would care one way or another that they're doing that right. and that they're doing it. And much like the, uh, the lookers, they seem fairly sincere in their benevolence, like more so than in some versions. They seem pretty convincing on the whole. Oh, no, this is for the best. Mm-hmm. You know, obviously it's sort of a, a self-interested way of looking at the world. But, it's good uh, for you. You know, for them to believe that. But it seems like within that limit, they do actually believe it. It also seems like they can have, even though he talks about them being having no emotion, it seems like they can have emotion. It seems like they are legitimately, like, you know, annoyed or angry at various <laughs> points. So it seems like they kind of mean it, you know, sort of in the like Star Trek sort of sense when somebody says they have no emotion, meaning they, they don't have emotions like exactly like ours. Mm-hmm. But, you know, there's definitely some kind of emotions that seem to, that seem to be uh, at play. Let's see, then you got a certain amount of uh, philosophizing about like, you know, the way we are without it and, you know, and then despair about just like, you know, man, the world just seems so so stacked against us, which is something that uh, Roxanne in uh, Immunities has had to deal with a little bit. And then Lorna in season three has to deal with a little bit. And it seems in a way, I mean, just because like, you know, that, that last takeover of Becky is so, seems much more like a something takes over your body type situation rather than a growing a pod person situation. So it could make you think of that, even though we were brilliantly able to explain it away. But uh it, it did seem immunities-like in that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, did either of you, any of you have any... Uh... Well, several thoughts. Uh, the first thing that comes to mind uh, from season three is the idea of, uh, of being a looker means never being alone. Oh, yeah. Which uh, seems to parallel to what we saw in the film, the idea of, uh, of selling this as an improvement over the human condition. Uh, and... Uh, why wouldn't you want to uh, undertake this kind of thing? Uh, but uh, the question I really have to keep coming back to, we've discussed it a little bit, is th- this issue of relevance to, the relevance of the story to its time. Uh, the thing with Invasion of the Body Snatchers is it came out in 56, uh, was made in 55, the Army McCarthy hearings ended in 54. So. There's a lot, a lot of folks, a lot of critics have said that this is a, an allegory for either the idea of, uh, of McCarthyism or the idea of communist infiltration. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, even, even though the producers and a lot of the cast say, no, 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 we were just making a thriller. Yeah. Uh, so my question for you is, is, is immunities in some way a, an allegory for the world of 2016 to 2019? Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm particularly, I was particularly struck when I realized that the immune folks who, who stand up to the, the lookers are called the resistance. Yeah, which is a word that's all over the place. Yeah. yeah. I'm, I guess I'm asking you what your relationship allegorically uh, as a story writer is to that kind of interpretation of the entire arc of the story. Well, I mean, the, the times we live in definitely did have an influence. You know, like the last thing that I did which you were involved in, Joe, is Companions, right. which is uh, available uh, as the hiatus between seasons one and two of Immunities and the Immunities feed. Also a uh, animated version available on YouTube is a kind of, I mean, even though like terrible things happen during the course of it, it's a much more warm, humanistic sort of story because it's about these two people like trying to get through all of this stuff together. And when I was trying to think of what my next thing was going to be, it seemed like my next thing, like the times weren't calling for that. It seemed like we were going into 
this period of a lot of not just political disagreement, but people just seemingly being from different planets, like just being completely unable to understand each other and unwilling to try, you know, just like going in between into their echo chambers. I felt like that made it just the perfect time for a, a body snatcher story. But at the same time, I tried to not have the body snatcher story be a perfect point by point parallel to anything oh, in particular. Sure. Allegories can be boring. Yeah. You know, <laughs> like the closest I've come to anything is if you look at all the stuff like Derek says in season three, you can find parallels to certain people in the men's movement who I would have no hesitation in wanting to disassociate myself from. <laughs> but even with him, within the context of his world, the stuff he says almost makes sense. He's not that far off the chart there. But whereas in our world, people, you know, who would say the same things that he's saying would be pretty reprehensible. But, you know, maybe in our world, he wouldn't say those things. So it's hard to say. But yeah, so I'm definitely mining, keeping like other times in which we live in mind, but without trying to have any particular side in it be any particular side in, uh, well, in that, real reality. That, that relates in a way to Invasion because there is this debate that you can read about in the critical literature about the films. Uh, is it is it a parable of the times, or is it, as the producers insist, not? Uh, you can find it there. Uh, same with uh, same with immunities, I would contend. Uh, you have certainly made connections with invasion. You brought in the idea of sleep. I wonder mm. if your intention of... Was that a direct uh, borrow on your part? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's a... Uh... In a few weeks when we get to The Invasion, the 2007 one, that's the one that was actually the biggest influence. Oh. And in that one, it actually they go into like the biology of sleep a little bit more. Mm. But yeah, just the idea of like, yeah, it gets you when you fall asleep is, is very, I mean, that's such a visceral part of this whole thing. So it, it's part of what makes it feel so hopeless in a way that uh, I wanted to keep that in. Plus, then you get the thing, you know, with the immune people, which actually you also get in 2007, it, the idea of how, you know, if you can put yourself in the point of view of the pod people, how weird it is. A pod person's loved one falls asleep, wakes up, is supposed to be their perfect companion now, and isn't. Mm. You know, like how Roxanne's family is so kind of shocked by her. Which, you know, then, once again, to not be too close a parallel, could be a parallel to somebody who raises a child, who becomes a young adult, who then starts having opinions that they don't recognize or something like that. So that, that the sleep thing, I thought, worked very well, both, you know, just for the initial horror of what's happening, but also for the immune thing. And then I started working into, like, you know, sort of how the, the different versions of immunity are sort of like different sleep disorders that people have. Hmm. So it's sort of because they don't sleep right, they don't get taken over right, sort of thing. Just one other parallel that fascinated me was the fact that uh, in both the movies and immunities, the horror works on the most intimate levels of human relationships that uh, Immunities begins in Roxanne and Shelley's home and we meet their parents and we're at, I believe we're at breakfast at the yeah. very beginning mm -hmm. and we sense as an audience immediately that the parents are a little off <laughs> uh, and, uh, and we discover by God they are and in the movies it is the closest person, your child, your spouse is the person that you start to have the suspicions about. So in that sense, that kind of intimate horror, I think, makes it uh, that much more effective oh, as you. drama. And uh, uh, yeah, going back to the beginning of, the, of, of Immunities was uh, uh, really 
It came back to me as, as strongly as it did the first time I heard it. And that was a place where I was like, I would say less subtle than most versions of Invasion of the Body Snatchers as far as how the people act differently. Mm -hmm. Because you know, even though I am trying to get across like part bits of the old personality and stuff like that, there has to be like Roxanne like goes down that the, that stairway not knowing whether like maybe this was all just a bad dream, right? And somebody who has doesn't know these characters already has to know immediately. No, it wasn't a bad dream. <laughs> it was all real. Yeah, that idea of intimate horror is definitely that's a really wonderful way of putting it because I feel like something very similar between specifically this version of Invasion and Immunities, is how idyllic everything feels and how that kind of very, like, American dream mm. sense mm -hmm. that you get from Invasion of the Body Snatchers and, of course, many, many movies of that time where it's, like, the suburban white picket fence house and how that all gets twisted and convoluted is definitely, I think, a familiar feeling to Immunities, just... Uh, turned on its head a little bit mm -hmm. so i definitely felt that yeah the cleavers live on one side yeah. and uh, willie loman lives on the other yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah yeah which in a way it undercuts it a little bit like what it's trying to do i think because right. like the psychiatrist at one point he says a couple months ago this place everybody had nothing but problems right and it's like i don't know everybody seems pretty pretty cheery right. <laughs> yeah Everything that might have been wrong is like so far in the remote, like, you know, their divorce, their respective marriages and divorces. Yeah, we sense coming in to, to the film and to Immunities that everybody's basically okay when <laughs> things begin. Uh, nobody's troubled. Nobody's uh, financially deprived. It's really, an, it, is, it is an idyllic community. When it's, and when we see that 7.30 a.m. setting, it looks, it, it's ideal. It's almost like something out of Disney World. Well, I would say uh, I, I actually made an attempt in Immunities to sort of convey the opposite of that. Mm -hmm. Like every time Roxanne like flashes back to like before the takeover, it's always fighting. So like, sure. remember like when, when her father pulls out the picture and he's like, do you remember when this picture was taken? And they're, they're all just like screaming at each other. She's or a like, teenager. <laughs> or like the morning when, uh, when, she, when Shelly got taken over, like, you know, they're like fighting over at the, you know, like That's true. They're, they're creatively calling each other fat and... You know, mm -hmm. didn't but, sound <laughs> abnormal to me for a, for a right. house with teenagers in it, having raised one. Yeah. And so I, I do try to put in reminders because it is easy to fall into, you know, because obviously the future is so horrifying mm -hmm. that everything sounds good other than that. But, you know, try to put into Roxanne and Dom, like the couple in season one and two, that they wouldn't be together. They would never have been together if it wasn't for the fact that the 2,000 people they were more likely to get together with have been converted. Well, I guess when I use the word idyllic, I really mean mm -hmm. just like setting like um, oh yeah like physical setting whereas like i definitely get the sense again from both um pieces that there's like a sense of conversation of utopia versus dystopia mm -hmm. where one cannot exist without the other but is one version of the world actually utopia and what is dystopia and what like once the lookers arrive or once the body mm. snatchers are here like do you really want to go back to the version of the way things were is it is the way things were a utopia just because of this one thing? Like, I think it brings up a lot of conversation mm. about what version of the world do you actually want to live in? And that's why, like, especially with Invasion of the Body Snatchers, the whole time I'm just like, put me to bed. Like, if this is, <laughs> like, I, <laughs> it's like, if this is the way things are going to be, if we're going to have to fight against this thing, is it really worth fighting for or is it like this version of the world you know the 1950s version wait in the car version of the world is that the i mean granted i'm a 2019 girl you know but um 
yeah, I think it definitely, both pieces bring up this conversation. Well, it does raise the question in, in immunities. What is the resistance fighting for? I think the resistance also just exists so that people have this sense of belonging. I think when Major Craig's big speech in episode 1.2 is a, a big thing about that, it's just sort of like, since so much has been taken out of your lives, what people are sort of filling it with is feeling like they're part of the resistance. They fill in these monthly reports, they get little jobs to do this and that. So I think that's kind of what also what it's for. As far as what Marjorie was saying about uh, idyllicism, I, I was just thinking that the not entirely defined because it's an audio drama setting where right. where immunities takes place it does have a certain sort of idyllic feel to it, I think. Whenever somebody's walking outside, there's birds or crickets mm -hmm. or something mm -hmm. like that. Yeah. And in order to get to work, Dom and Roxanne seem to walk like a railroad embankment or something and then maybe through a... I guess they walk through a tunnel at one point because that's where Weird Gwen posts herself. But it sounds like an interesting sort of place, like a place where a Steven Spielberg movie would take place. Yeah. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's got these sort of interesting things. And I mean, and that's all there. That was actually all there pretty much from the beginning because I originally wrote it as a, like the first episode as a screenplay. Mm -hmm. So because looking back, I was tempted to say, well, maybe it's, it's like that because that gives me a nice of little sound cues to signal you're here, you're here, you're here, you're here. Mm -hmm. But that's pretty much how I pictured it from the beginning. And yeah. I, I'd never really uh, thought about that about myself, but maybe that is so that you have that sort of nice base level that the horror is then like uh, in mm -hmm. contrast. Did you ever take it so far as to assign it a geographical location? Oh, absolutely not. Okay. <laughs> well, I mean, if I had shot it, I would have shot in the environs of Chicago because that's my level of that, that that's where I live and that's my level of resources. But uh, as far as it seems a little more where rural, it's taking place right? now, yeah, I think I picture it as being like a ways downstate. Mm -hmm. Illinois is sort of what I'm thinking of. Someplace yeah. a little warmer and a lot more rural, obviously. Is the right. <laughs> yeah. But even in season three, when you're definitely steeped in like a lot of chaos and a lot more of like this kind of um, almost like a normalcy of how the world has now been set up and with the lookers and everything, where everything's just a little tense, a little grittier. It still feels like they're at the diner. They're like going down the dirt roads, like mm -hmm. they're in the barn or whatever. You know, it all feels very like holding on to that kind of I don't know, that that setting. That, Americana? That, or yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um and it's funny that it still exists despite how much the world has changed in Immunity Season 3 where everybody still goes down to the diner. That's where the truckers go. You know, whatever. Right, like, right. Yeah. I guess I mean, one thing I've dealt with just a couple times in Immunities and just in passing is which uh, these do, this one has an interesting view of is like places that are, you know, under the aliens would apparently just close down. Like we would no longer have like a, well, maybe he's closed down the fruit market, not so much because of lack of track of it, because because he's busy built, growing pods or something. Yeah. But, yeah. but like, you know, the, the supper club is closed down or, you know, is in the process of closing down. Like, it seems like the aliens have no need to go, you know, even at the risk of everything seeming strange because they're not going there, they're not going there. Mm -hmm. um, and in immunities, we don't get a lot of that. The closest we get to that is when the, the resistance is using a public school as a meeting place, mm -hmm. like when, where Craig uh, meets Roxanne for the first time. And uh, she says something like, oh, I used to go to school here. I guess lookers don't go to school in the same way. And Craig's like, no, they don't. <laughs> <laughs> so like the natural features of the area are still there and the houses are still there, but the society is kind of restructuring Changed. itself. Yeah. It kind of reminds me of, I just saw <laughs> um, the play Sweat by Lynn Nottage at the Goodman. And it's about the... Um, kind of uh, 
it's set in the early 2000s when steel industry was really slowing down and it's set in Reading, Pennsylvania when the steel mills were closing down and it's like all these people still live here. All these people still have to make a life here but they don't have a job or like things aren't the same and the way the town is structured isn't centered around the steel mill anymore but the bar still is full of people because that's where they have to go. It like really reminds mm-hmm. me of that clinging to any sort of that ideal, that idyllic life, that mm-hmm. like kind of maybe those uh, those kind of totems of your life before like the lookers showed up are like the ways you hold on to that kind of utopia or whatever sort of thing. I keep using that word not correctly, but right. yeah, that's and what like, it reminds me of. The one resistance meeting that we that we see, the, you know, the one where Major Craig makes his speech in episode two, that's mostly there to convey the rules of how the look works and stuff like mm-hmm. that but i also i always felt like it has sort of the feeling of like various things now where like people are sort of trying to keep civil society alive sort of a, a, a neighborhood watch meeting or a town meeting right. or something like that condo association meeting you know anything like that where it's there's a certain amount of business being done a certain amount of backbiting and gossip probably happening yet it's like the one person making a remark about how they wish the aliens would take weird gwen away but uh yeah that was i definitely had that in somewhere in my mind while i was writing all that that you know it's a in the new world, you probably like keep a lot. Of, you know where the like the nearest unaltered people are. If you're if you're immune, you probably know like immune people and keep tabs on them in a way that you wouldn't with your neighbors in a normal society. Alrighty, well, thank you guys so much for being part of this. This has been a lot of fun. Well, thank you. Yeah, of course. Thank you for having yeah, me. Us. <laughs> <laughs> Marjorie, you're involved in a lot of things. Is there anything you would like people, uh, say, a couple weeks into the future, uh, to know about? Um, well, a couple weeks into the future. That's actually, nice actually, this is going to be the first episode put up. So, uh, it might only be just a few days in the future. Now that oh, okay. Well, uh, depending on when this is released, um, I'm currently in a show called 12 Ophelias at the Martin in oh. Chicago. Is that sold out? It, we're, we're sold out, but you can get on a wait list. <laughs> And my theater company hosts uh, Nomads Art Collective. We host a monthly event uh, the last Sunday of every month called The Forge, where we feature a Chicago-based visual artist, musician, and a new play reading. Um, That happens at the the last Sunday of every month, as I said. And uh, Nomads Art Collective's first fully mounted production, which I am producing, uh, opens March 29th and runs till April 21st. Mr. Kodamoto is definitely not white. You can check us out at nomadsartcollective.org. Yay. Yeah. Uh, And Joe, are you involved in anything at the moment, or in between Uh, things? At the moment, not... Well, you just got back into town, I just, guess. Well, I just got back into town. So there'll be nothing in the next few weeks, but later in the summer, I'll be playing Duke Frederick in a production of As You Like It up in Lake Forest. And uh, at some point, I'm in a film called The Letter, which is an H.P. Lovecraft piece. Oh, wow. That will be coming. I, it's, been, it's been in post-production forever, so I have no idea when. <laughs> but at some point, uh, yeah, look for a, a, a nice little horror film in which I play the guy near the beginning who says, I wouldn't go there if I were you. <laughs> That's a very necessary part. It's a very, oh, yes, yes. It's, uh, it's uh, the admonition, which, of course, the hero completely ignores. <laughs> All right, great. And then, uh, so everybody listening to us, uh, tune in next time when we will be talking about Invasion of the Body Snatchers 1978, Susan Teklar-Kruglinska uh, from the Shining 237 podcast. So she's a expert in late 70s, early 80s horror and uh, another actor from Immunities. So thank you very much. Goodbye. Thank you. Dueling
genre.